Uh, similar question. David Jaffin's one flaw as a student was blank. Having me as his advisor is serious <laughs> detriment. And I'm, I was, I held the kid back. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome out of the fuck to do that job the show where two not so interesting guys ask interesting people one question and then interrupt them as they try to answer it joining us today is dennis denninger dennis graduated from syracuse university in 1973 five years after leaving syracuse he started working as an executive producer for wsvn channel 7 in 1991 he started as a coordinating producer for espn in bristol connecticut in his 14 years at espn dennis rose become head of digital video production for the company during that time, he also started teaching as a professor at his alma mater. After his time at ESPN in 2008, Dennis started the company Denninger Media and produced a documentary called America's First Sport about the game of lacrosse. He also began working as a full-time professor in Syracuse's sports management department. Today, he is still a professor at Falk College and continues to produce content. Dennis, welcome to the show. And how the fuck did you get that job? <laughs> Which job? You know, that's yeah. the thing. <laughs> Is the job as a professor, the job at ESPN, the job, you're right about the fact that all of us have different paths. And one of the people I have to thank is Bob Costas, who left Syracuse at the right time. Because when Bob Costas left, there was an opening at Channel 3 in Syracuse, which was the NBC affiliate. And Bob had a part-time job there. He had some play-by-play um, -play jobs that they were just cobbled together uh, for doing minor league hockey and uh, Syracuse basketball, that kind of thing. And he worked three days a week at Channel, Channel 3. And when he left town, I auditioned for this job, which was basically you were the uh, number three weather guy. You were the number three sports guy. Uh, you had to do some radio news during the week, and you had to fill in as a disc jockey once in a while on a Sunday morning. So it was really a utility infielder job. And I, I've told Bob that I'm eternally grateful that he left Syracuse because I've been working in radio, and it gave me the opportunity to get into television. And I got into radio. And I think the, the, best, the best thing that anybody can get from this conversation is always be curious. Always be curious. Ask questions. When I was a junior in high school in this little town of Hornell, New York, which is in Western New York State, um, a couple of guys who were seniors, who I looked up to, had been working at the little radio station in town. It's a town of about 11,000 people at the time. It's down to 9,000 now or eight, whatever. Um, but they've been working at this radio station. So I'm curious, how did you guys do that? So they tell me, well, we went up to Buffalo and we we took the test for a third class FCC license and, and we worked for minimum wage. You know, we went and worked for the, the guy who owned the radio station. So I thought, oh, man, that sounds really cool. So just by asking a question, I got interested in, well, you know, if they can do that, I can do that. So I followed their path. And as a senior in high school, I landed the job of doing the morning news on the radio station. And I would go in at 5.30 in the morning, work till 8.30, and then I would walk to school. So it was perfect. And I was on the radio. The teachers could hear me on their way in to work. And talk about get falling in love with broadcasting. And what did it? Asking one question. 
If he's, oh, that's cool, guys, and just shut up, I never would have been in broadcasting, you know? Uh, so asking questions is the big thing. Now, I get to Syracuse University, and there's WAER, which is the uh, FM station for students. Um, but I'm, I'm already a professional. You know, I've been paid to do this. What made Syracuse the right school for you? Uh, I was uh, a pretty damn good student, actually. And I got a scholarship to go to Syracuse. And since I was one of the eldest of five boys in a family that was not scraping together a whole lot of money, it, I went for the scholarship. And they were kind enough to offer me a scholarship. And, you know, I have since then, I have made plenty of contributions back to Syracuse University. So um, it was... Uh, it was, the, it was the right place to go. And since I, as a senior in high school now, I'm on the radio, now I've got this interest in public communications and Syracuse has the Newhouse School, which is famous for public, public communications. So it was a perfect fit and it's turned out to be a great fit. So that's how I got that job. So when you, when you started on, on the radio, was in your head was the goal to get to television at that time? Or was it just, man, I love, I like, like you talked about, I love hearing like the idea of my teachers hearing my voice on the way to school. You know what? Um, I think that any job that you get introduces you to more people. You have to look at it that way. Every job is a networking opportunity. So um, I got to meet other people in radio and I wasn't really thinking beyond radio at the time. I went to Syracuse. Now I'm taking radio and television courses well, you know, this TV stuff is pretty cool. Um, and I would go back to my hometown. And in the summer, uh, I worked part time on the radio station. So there was a gig, they needed some people for for fill in, etc. In the, in the summertime. So as a as a junior, right after my junior year at Syracuse, I, I got a job working for the post standard newspaper in town. So I, I could write news, I could report news, etc. And a guy comes into the newsroom and he's looking, he asked the editor, well, where's, where can I find Dennis Denninger? And you mean that kid over there? He said, yeah. So he introduces himself. He's the news director of the CBS radio station in town. And I had sent out little tapes. Back then they were little reel-to-reel tapes that you sent out. I sent them out to a number of the radio stations in Syracuse. And this, I'd sent them out over a year beforehand. This guy liked the tape. He comes into the newsroom and it's just before my senior year. And he says, I got a 20 hour a week job doing the afternoon news. You wanna come work for me at this radio station? So, you know, one little thing, asking a question. Now I've worked on the radio in this little hometown. You sent out a reel, suddenly a guy in Syracuse likes how you sound, et cetera. And I didn't sound, didn't sound like an adult, I don't think at the time anyway, but I, I must've sounded okay. So, um, and I worked for a senior year and when I graduated, they had uh, one of our people from the news department had gone off to KDKA in Pittsburgh and there was an opening. So one thing goes to another. Now, the one thing I wanted to say about networking is that because now I'm working at a radio station in Syracuse, I'm covering some of the same stories that the TV stations cover. So I'm interacting with some of the TV reporters and getting to know who they are and finding out, oh, one of them says, you know, Channel three is, uh, Costas is leaving, or channel nine has got an opening. It's all about getting across the threshold. I think the courage that you have to ask questions, to say, hey, can I help? That, that crossing the threshold makes all the difference in getting a job that you like. And, and you talk about how the importance of networking, right? Each job is a new opportunity. 
uh, back when you were doing that, there was there was no LinkedIn, right? There was no none of that. Like, how how are you taking note? And like, did you have like a little C CRM and by a CRM, like I mean like a notepad, or was it just like all all in here? Uh, most of it was in your head, and you know what? If you're covering news, you wind up going to the same kind of events week in, week out, or every other other couple of weeks or so with the same people. And some of them are showing up with TV cameras, and some of them are there for the radio, and you just get to know them. Um, I, I hadn't really kept started a file yet at that point, um, but I'd worked at, uh, in radio and I got the Costas job, which was part-time. And I was, gonna get, I was gonna marry the girl that I met at Syracuse, uh, an Italian girl from New Jersey. And there's a law in New Jersey, you cannot marry an Italian girl from New Jersey without a full-time job. They will track you down. I needed a full-time job. So I inquired about this job that all right, with, with the Costas job, I was, I was actually on TV, you know, and I could do, the, do some uh, reporting, et cetera. And the job at Channel 9 was full-time, but it was three days a week producing the news and two days a week on the weekend being the weekend reporter. Well, I went to Channel 9, and which was the ABC station in Syracuse and still is. And I was there with a guy by the name of Stephen Frazier, who went on to be an anchor at CNN for 10, 15 years. And there was some pretty good talent there. I was not gonna be the best reporter, believe me, at Channel 9. But within two weeks after starting to produce, which I hadn't given any thought to, I was the best producer there. And within six months, I felt like I was the best producer in Syracuse. 18 months later, I was hired by the uh, Cap City's ABC station in Hartford, New Haven, which was a big jump in market size, and that means they charge more for their advertising so they can pay you more. <clears throat> and within 50 weeks after going to New Haven, I was hired in Miami. So in less than a year, I went from Syracuse to Miami. Back then it was market number 65 to market number 12, which was a huge jump. And because what? I said, you know what? I'm not gonna be the next Bob Costas. He's really good at being Bob Costas, but I became a producer and here I am 23 years old and my judgment is, is affecting what people learn about. And that's a responsibility and I loved it. And I loved working with the people to put together a show and, and make those things happen. So the point there is if you're looking for a job, the perfect job may not be the one you're looking for. You may step into a job and right and now, nowadays, jobs, the, the, the students who are graduating from Syracuse this year, next year, the jobs that they spend their entire careers in may not even exist. When I graduated from Syracuse, there was no ESPN. So none of the jobs I had at ESPN ever existed. And when I got to ESPN, the job I finished with as heading up digital production, that didn't exist because there was no digital production. There wasn't an internet. So what you need to do is I really, I always counsel students and anybody that, that cares about what I say or even cares to ask is um, you've got to be a student of the industry. If you want to be a professional, you have got to figure out and stay in touch with what's going on in your business. Where is there change? Where is there a new network? Where is something being built? Those are the things that you keep track of. I worked in Hartford, New Haven, for less than a year, 50 fabulous weeks in New Haven, Connecticut, before going to Miami. 
that was there. I was in New Haven the year before ESPN launched. So I go down to Miami and I've got my new wife and we buy a little house and I have cable installed and I turn on the cable and there is the guy who had been my anchor man on the news in New Haven as the anchor of SportsCenter. George Grand was the first anchor of SportsCenter and he was the guy I was producing. He was my anchor man. So, oh my goodness, what is this ESPN? So, okay, I'm curious. When you I take, stated, pardon? When you see him on ESPN, right? And that's, well, what's your first take on the ESPN? Without the pun intended about first take, but. <laughs> it, I, was, I was shocked. I didn't know anything about it, but I started finding out about it. But here's George, George Grand, and you know, less than a year earlier, he'd been doing the news for Action News 8 from New Haven, Connecticut. Um, so, and George was the first anchorman. The, the night that ESPN debuted, September 7th, 1979, George Grand was the guy on the Sports Center desk. So it was, it was surprising to me. I was in Miami. I was at an NBC affiliate. We had lots of news. I mean, Miami has got, we, we, they started doing an hour long six o'clock newscast in 1967. There's so much news in Miami. So I was in a news hotbed and I was the guy in charge of news, you know, the newscast, news, weather, sports, the whole deal. Um, and here's, here's George up there. And I'm thinking, you know, this, is this going to work? That was part of my question, David, is my new bride and I were thinking about having a family and I, oh man, is this, that can actually be me making money? Is that going to last? Well, three years later, it's, it was still on. And I, I was back in touch with, with George and they let me know, you know what? We, they've got an opening and they've just created a new position here called coordinating producer for SportsCenter. Somebody to oversee all these misfits, sports fans and knuckleheads who are in, in SportsCenter, most of them first time jobs out of college, you know, and it was very much a, you know, it was a fraternity. It was, it was a fraternity house of sports. And I needed to bring a little bit of semblance of professionalism to it. There was a little bit of semblance, but not a lot. So that's the, they let me know about the job. And I, and I interviewed it a couple of times. And before I knew it, they're moving me and my wife and my little boy from Miami up to Connecticut again. And we were familiar with Connecticut. And you, you obviously believed in the concept, but did you have an idea at that time of how big it could get? Like, when you were thinking, all right, if, the, if, if this job at SportsCenter, if SportsCenter is a sweeping success, I think, I think we could get to this level. Did you have what it ended up being in mind? No, not <laughs> at all. Because when I got there, this was a money-losing proposition. They were still in the red. The founder of ESPN had started it with no money. Bill Rasmussen had been fired as the, as the head of communications for what was then the New, uh, New England Whalers, and they became the Hartford Whalers. And he was 46 years old, he's out of a job, and he founds this company basically on his, his research. He knew that while he was working for the Whalers, he and his son had been putting together videotapes of a half hour Whalers highlight show. So they would actually get in their cars and Rasmussen would head east in Connecticut and the sun would head west or vice versa. And they would bring tapes to each of the cable systems. This is an era before regional sports networks. Not every game was televised. So he said, you know, maybe we can get some more exposure if we deliver these tapes to the cable systems. So he knew about cable. 
he gets fired. He, he brings these cable people together. And he says, you know, I'm thinking about maybe I could syndicate some University of Connecticut games, some Hartford, Hartford Whalers games. And maybe we, we distribute them to cable systems or local TV stations. We can syndicate them and make a little bit of money. He starts asking questions. And the guy, one of the cable guys tells him, and I got this from Bill Rasmussen. One of the cable guys there says, you know, Bill, we're, we got this satellite now delivering our content to our cable system. Maybe, maybe you should check on it. And nobody in the room, these guys are cable operators. Nobody in the room even knew what the footprint was of cable, of the satellite. You know, okay, now they thought maybe it was just New England, maybe the East Coast. They had no idea. So what does he do? He starts asking questions. He calls the guy from RCA, and RCA says, heck yeah, you know, it covers the whole country. And if you buy a month's worth of time, 24 hours a day for seven days a week, it'll cost you $35,000. Suddenly, now back in those days, AT&T was the monopoly on distribution of color television with two channels of audio. That's the only way you could get it was via AT&T. There's not a lot of satellite distribution. So AT&T would charge you three, $4,000 an hour, and they would charge you construction costs at both ends. It was very, ex so to do one game that Bill Rasmussen wanted to do, maybe one Whalers game, would have cost him three, $5,000 just for the transmission. Here he's getting a deal, $35,000 for a month. Now the light goes off in his head. Wait a minute, if I got 24 hours seven, I could have a network for 24 seven. He started small with, but he asked questions. And that when we had a 40th reunion for ESPN old timers last September, because September 2019 was the 40th anniversary. We all got together and I got to spend a little time with Bill and I'm, I'm telling him, hey, Bill, I talk about you on my courses for goodness sake. You know, and he was having a good time with me. He says, Dennis, without ABC and NBC, there never would have been an ESPN. He explains, ABC is always be curious. And NBC is never be complacent. Always be curious. Within a month after getting fired, he's announcing he's going to launch a cable network via satellite. And a month earlier, he had no idea what satellites were, right? But he kept asking questions. So that's the key to success is always be curious. And the never be complacent part is if you get into a routine and you're happy with where your chief is in the maze every day and you run there with the rest of the rats, someday somebody's gonna move that cheese and you're gonna be a rat without any cheese. So you can't be complacent. Be, fear the routine, fear the pattern. If it feels easy, there's a problem. You need to, you need to grow, you need to move, you need to pay attention to where the business is changing because change always represents opportunities. That was, that was an unbelievable little bit. To quote uh, our, one of our previous podcast guests, Darren K. Roberts, he uses the same uh, kind of, not, not ABC and NBC, but stay in the deep end about complacency. Like, you know, always stay in the deep end of the pool. Not, you know, you don't want to be walking around the shallow end of the pool. I want to get into, too, just a little bit more about your story. Like, that conversation between, you know, you, you and your wife, was she, was she like, how did you convince her that moving from, you, you got a good job in Miami to Bristol, Connecticut, uh, th those are two very different places to work, to work on Sports Center, which was at that time, you were saying a, a quote unquote fraternity. You know what, it, it was, once they had been on the air, I got hired at ESPN in the late 1982. 
uh, once they'd been on the air for over three years, I had a sense that they were going to last. And I had a number of people, contacts who I'd worked with at Channel 8 in New Haven who had moved up there to Bristol, not a long drive. So I had a sense that they were going to stick it out. And from, from Bill Rasmussen, before he even put it on the air, Getty Oil had bought ESPN. They bought 80% of ESPN and left Rasmussen with only 20. So Getty Oil had some pretty deep pockets. So I was like, okay, I'll be a Getty Oil employee. And the other thing was everybody has, you know, when you, your parents get a little older, they all, they move to Florida, right? And hey, we're going to go move to Florida. Well, my parents never moved to Florida. My wife's parents never moved to Florida. So if we all wanted to see relatives for Thanksgiving or Christmas, we always had to fly north. So flying north was, okay, if we can get a job up north, we can be driving distance to her relatives in New Jersey, my relatives in New York State. So that was part of it, but also it was the network. Working for a local station, working for a local station is one thing, working for a network is something else. And that's another piece of advice if people are looking for jobs is you wanna go where the smart people are and the smartest people are gonna be at the higher level. So maybe you take a lower level job someplace but it gets you across the threshold, as I was talking about. Now you're exposed to all these possibilities and all the things that you can do and all of the different divisions there are. I love telling the story about George Bodenheimer. George Bodenheimer was the president of ESPN for a good chunk of the last uh, 15 years or so that I was there. George Bodenheimer graduated from Denison College and not didn't have a TV degree. Um, he got a job at ESPN as a driver. He was working in the mail room. Now, fast forward 10 years and George Bodenheimer is the vice president of ESPN for affiliate marketing. When he got to ESPN, he had no idea what affiliate marketing was, but he's the vice president, he's the top guy 10 years later. Why? He was curious, he asked questions. Somebody says affiliate marketing and if you are thinking, well, geez, they're going to think I'm stupid if I don't, I don't know what affiliate marketing is. George was a guy, hey, what's affiliate marketing? Oh, they do this and this. And they, they're the people who connect with every single cable system. And there are 10,000 cable systems that take ESPN. They need a lot of service. Hey, George, will you go to Denver for us and be out in Denver? Just by asking questions, showing that you're interested, I want to learn about something. And that's the point about being in a network. They've got a lot of different divisions. So maybe like I think I'm gonna be the next Bob Costas, but I step into and find a new role. I had five different jobs at ESPN in 25 years because opportunities, and you know what, within a company like that, they get to know, all right, is this guy full of it or does he know what he's talking about? Um, does he work hard or does he, does he, is he a slacker? So those are the kinds of things that once you're inside the building, are very helpful. So that's another thing to be looking for. If if you get a job, even as the it's the mailroom person. I mean, there there are a number of um, Hollywood agencies where they insist that people start in the mailroom because that's where you get to learn all the different divisions. You get to interact with people. So you know, not that not that a lot of people deliver mail anymore. You know, and a lot of packages showing up, I guess, from Amazon and UPS. Sure. There's one question I, and this is kind of a good transition. One question I really wanted to ask you and get into, you were at the top level of, you know, what, what we call like a content creation machine at the time of the internet coming. What were some of those conversations like, and, and how did they change from like when you first started hearing about it to, and like what, where you thought the applications were to ESPN to like, 
what it became in your time there? They, they started, you know what, it was interesting. And what I, you came to, you came to accept a, that innovation was going to be part of the DNA of the place. Because I was there, I got there in 1982, and I started, um, um, I worked in Sports Center for three and a half years. The president of the company said, he came to me and he said, we'd like to get more young viewers because if we can get young viewers early, then they'll be ESPN fans for life. So he asked me to create a show and I came up with a show called Scholastic Sports America, which was all about high school athletes. And the very first high school athlete that we profiled, and I hired a kid by the name of Chris Fowler, who was 23. And now, you know, I guess we were, he, he, I must have been just as old as he is because now he's 56, for God's sakes. Anyway, it's a long time. He's 23 years old, his second job out of college. And the first high school athlete that I sent him to cover was a kid named Emmett Smith in Pensacola, Florida. You know, so I, we kind of were, we got plugged in. But anyway, I'm working at this this job and 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 now, okay, two or three years down the road, you're showing that you can do a you you can do a good job in that role and opportunities open the door for moving to uh, remote production. So in 1991, I started in remote production, which is now I'm in charge of our tennis shows, horse racing shows, boxing shows, wherever they are all over the world. Um, and for a kid growing up in Western New York, that's pretty cool. Um, and right around that time, 1991, is when ESPN started talking about launching a second network. So you start to think about, okay, innovation is what we do. We, we always were adding, 1987, they added NFL, live NFL for the first time. I got there in 82, and we're losing money. We're a bunch of young guys. And how are we going to have NFL games on, our, on the year? Well, five years later, we got NFL on the year. So you came to expect it. 1991, they said, start talking about a second network. So 24 hours a day of sports was not enough, guys. We had to do 48 hours of sports a day, you know, and they didn't double the staff. You know, you were just responsible for a lot more shows and you had to fill them and, and all the rest of that. So, and then you start a radio network, an ESPN radio. And right around the same time in the 1990s, we're starting ESPN International. And I was doing a lot of the sports that had international interest, tennis and horse racing. So we're sending stuff all over the world in different languages. And, and, and now they start this ESPN net sports zone, which was on the internet, you know, and little bits of commentary and not much, really no video at all. Uh, but it was just something you came to expect. And it, and it gradually grew to the point that, all right, this is going to be yet another one of these ESPN3, ESPN Radio, ESPN um, News, ESPN The Magazine, just another way in which we will connect with sports fans. So it felt natural. So, and, and you spoke about innovation too. Uh, I wanna hear about ShotSpot and, and, and how you developed that and that's still being used uh, by tennis for, for people that don't know. And, and Dennis, I'll let you chime in, but that's the technology used to, to see if, if shots are inbound, right? Where did that idea come from? And like, how was how that executed? Uh, there's a few good lessons in there too. And I'm, I'm proud to say that my team and I, we, we won an Emmy award for the um, best technical innovation in sports uh, in 1992, which was an Olympic year. So we beat out all the stuff that they were doing in the Olympics, which was really cool. Um, 
I had been, we were doing all the tennis and the Women's Tennis Association had their championship. I believe it was, oh, and this is maybe uh, 2001. They had their championship in uh, Munich. I mean, it, it was the site of where the Munich Olympics had been. And um, I'm there and I, I see this, the German network, Sat Eins, uh, they have this replay device that is showing this little blip on the side, whether the ball is in or out. So that's the always be curious. Hey, how are you doing that? Well, you should meet this guy. So I go over and find out from the guy who's in charge of the operation. He says it's infrared. So actually the little bit of friction that the ball is causing on the court changes the temperature of that spot on the court for just a slight. And he had the sensors around to pick it up. And he had these sensors all over the place. So I thought that's, that's pretty cool. I said, can I, get a can I get a tape of it, a little demo or something so I can show them back at ESPN. Um, so we got a copy of something from Sadines had done. And back then it was before the era of digital. So the tape that he gives me would not play on any machine in the United States. It was in this, it was called PAL, P-A-L. And actually the European standard, they had more lines. It was a better picture. Um, so I bring it back to the United States and at ESPN, they, they, they were able to convert it because we're now at ESPN International. We got stuff going, all right? So they convert it to a tape that I can show on a player in, in, in the newsroom or in, in, in our studios. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, boy, how cool would this be to put this on one of our events? So I looked at my calendar and I said, okay, this is the end of the year, it's November. How about if come March, when we have the week long event from Key Biscayne, the, the Miami Open, we always did that. How, wouldn't it be great if for a week we could introduce this so I, I knew, and I, as coordinating producer, I knew what the budget was for the coming year. I knew I didn't have money to fly a bunch of technicians over from Germany, put them up in hotels in Miami for a week and do this, put this on. But you know what? If you don't ask, you're never gonna find out whether you can support it or not. So I take this tape and I still remember, I've got the tape in my hand. I'm going up to the, the, the office, the door of my boss. I'm thinking, you know, should I do this or not? I know there's no money. I said, what the hell? So I go and I say, hey, Rich, I, you got to see this. You got to see this. He looks at it. He says, that's great. I said, yeah, I really like to put it in the Miami Open for next March, but I got no money. He says, Dennis, I just killed this thing we were going to do for NASCAR at the end of the season. Here's $45,000. Take it. If you never asked. So now I got the money. I call the guy in Germany. Hey, I'm booking you in Miami. Come on and bring your stuff. So and now, of course, now I have to get clearance from the people, the tournament directors in Miami to say, OK, we want to put little sensors all over your damn court. You know, and actually it was very clever. They would put them underneath the chairs of the line umpires, et cetera, the line judges. You know, they always had those little deck chairs. So they were hidden away. Nobody was going to trip over them or anything. Anyway, that that started that year. And then I found out about a company that was that was doing the same kind of thing in England. And I, we, I had visited Wimbledon. We were talking about possibly putting Wimbledon on the air. So I got hooked up with this guy, Paul Hawkins, Dr. Paul Hawkins, who looked like he was a teenager. He had a doctorate and he was a te teenage doctorate. I mean, one of these brilliant people. And he was doing it with cameras, not infrared sensors. So I took the best of one, the best of the other, cobbled it together. And we, we brought it to the French Open. 
And I said to the French, I said, you know, I'd really like to put these sensors underneath your chairs, et cetera, and we're going to do this. And, um, and the, 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 the French tournament director, he's a little bit skeptical. And then I show him, I said, but you know what? Here, I'll show you this demo. We can incorporate all of your signage. We'll be in there digitally. The French loved it. He says, oh, I can go back to my sponsors and charge them a few more, few more francs, for God's sakes. Get a few more euros out of them because it's going to be digitally shown. So just the fact that we we're taking a, a freeze frame, a shot of his court with all of his signs, that kind of cleared the way for that. So um, we, we did it in Miami. I brought it to the French. They loved it. We did the French. And we used the, the material from those two and put together an Emmy entry and, you know, we, we won the Emmy. And, and I think the, what put it on most, it's now on for most of the tennis tournaments around the world, it's there. What did the trick was when we got Wimbledon, we got ESPN got Wimbledon rights in 2003. And believe me, when I got to ESPN in 1982, I never thought that I would be in, you know, in the Royal box at Wimbledon thinking, okay, this is, we're doing this. We belong here, but we did. Um, and at Wimbledon, I said, you know, we're, now we got rights to Wimbledon. We're going to be there for two weeks. I have got to have my shot spot there. It's got to be the signature event. And then now I had budgeted some money. I go, okay, we're going to do this with the guy from England. Who's, you know, I didn't have to pay his accommodations or his flight because he was there. So what you always factor in, it's gotten more expensive. So anyway, the, the, the folks in the All England Club said, you know what? Provisionally, we'll give you the go ahead, but we got to test it first. You got to set it up so we can test it. Okay, so the Saturday before play is supposed to begin on, on Monday, we go out to one of these courts and we've got it set up and members of the All England Club, they actually take the tennis ball and they drop it onto the line and they can see whether it hit the line, did it just nick the line? And then they said, okay, show us your little gizmo. Show us where it was. And every single time it was spot on. And it's more sensitive than the human eye. So it was even closer. So I was, I was this close to losing 50,000 or more dollars because I had booked these folks to do the thing for two weeks. And the All England Club says, yep, we'll do it. And once Wimbledon did it, it was, it was a, a, a measure of acceptance and credibility. Um, so now it's used, all, and every time I watch tennis, I'm pretty happy that, you know, that's something that I introduced to American television. That's, that's so, so awesome. And it's so cool just to hear that story and to always be curious. And the ABC and NBC is a reoccurring, uh, reoccurring theme uh, in, in your story. I, I, want, I want to take it to present day. We, we don't have too much time left, uh, but just, how, how you got into teaching, you know, that, that's how we met. Uh, and you, you were one of my professors. I'm not trying to kick your tires, but my favorite professor. And I think it was from your ability to uh, storytell and, and command a class and just keep every, keep lectures intriguing as, you know, some professors are a little, it's not, not as intriguing. A lecture doesn't have an intriguing or sometimes not next to each other, especially for my generation, but it, you, you happen to do it. So I just want to hear from you about like, what, what do you love about teaching? Uh, and, and just like, what, what's next? What, what are you trying to keep on always be curious about? You know, it was a great opportunity to go back to my alma mater. And while I was at ESPN, even before we put Wimbledon on the air, um, I was invited up to do a guest lecture at the Newhouse School in 1999. Um, uh, and I, I remember the topic was, 
how do you take an idea and make it into a sports series, a TV show? And all of the different processes you had to go through. And the whole idea there was, I'm gonna let you know that there are all these different jobs involved at a television network that you might never have ever thought of taking an idea to get it and turning it into a television show. So I did this guest lecture and I really enjoyed it. We had a pretty good turnout in Newhouse. So as I'm leaving, I, I said to the, the chair of the um, broadcast and digital uh, journalism department, I said, you know, it'd, it'd be nice to do something else. And then they said, you know, we do these one, one week or they're one credit, we're little workshops. And maybe you could take a week in the spring and, and come do something like that. So year 2000, I started at the Newhouse School and I took a week's vacation from ESPN. I'm gonna, I'm gonna invest in this. I'm, I'm curious and I would enjoy this. So I did a one week seminar on live sports production and I timed it so that during that week, there was an ESPN basketball game at the dome. So the night of the game, the class was in the TV truck. And it's like, eyes like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. Um, so I started doing, and I really enjoyed that because you're exposing young people to so many possible opportunities that they didn't realize were there. And you're giving them the strength of the background as to why this is done this way and how this is done this way. So I started doing that. And a few years later, I was talking to Michael Schoonmaker, Dr. Schoonmaker, who's the head of television radio film and still is at the Newhouse School. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about what, what's the next chapter for me? You know, I've been at ES, I had, I had been at ESPN over 20 years at the time. What's, been, what's the next chapter? And he says, um, well, Dennis, what would you teach? You know, that is a great question to ask someone. It basically says, what the hell do you know enough about to tell other people about? What would you teach? And he didn't say, well, you know, I got this class here or somebody's gonna retire, maybe you could fit into this. No, he said, what would you teach? And it made you think, okay, what do I know about? Now I know about international. I know about programming sports. I know about producing sports. Now I know about digital. I know about uh, lots of stuff. So I start making a list. Anyway, I came up with this proposal with Dr. Schoonmaker's help as to, okay, this might be a one semester, once a week kind of course. We submitted the idea in 2005, 2007. In October, 2007, I got a phone call. It says, Dennis, we have green lighted your course. You can start it as a as a graduate level course at the Newhouse School. Now it's just one course, right? Well, you can start it and I'm thinking to myself, when is anybody ever gonna offer me that again if I haven't been taught before, right? So that's, you talk about a conversation with your wife. It's like, okay, I've reached a certain level at ESPN and I'm making decent money. And now I wanna just push that away and go teach one course at Syracuse. And that's when I started Denninger Media and we started doing some other films kind of thing. But anyway, that was, thankfully, she was employed and had benefits, et cetera, so I could step from one to the next. And within, again, it's the crossing the threshold. Within a year at Syracuse University, I had met some of the people from the sport management department, and they're expanding their courses and say, you know, we've got a course that we really like, and we think that you'd be a natural for. So I'm an adjunct, but now instead of doing one course in one semester, I'm doing two courses in one semester and a course in a, and a workshop in another semester. And, you know, it's just, you introduce yourself. What is it that you can do? How much are you going to enjoy it? And again, like, like when I first did producing, found that I really enjoyed it. I stepped in and I really enjoyed the, the teaching. So I, I left ESPN and 
I left, I love the people at ESPN, but I left about a year and a half before they started laying people off. And I, I'm, I know, I mean, I have a friend, a dear friend who was a Syracuse graduate and he has 16 Emmy Awards. He created the NFL Countdown Show, right? He created it. And they showed him the door with 16 Emmys, for goodness sake. I got three. I know I would have been out the door before him, you know? So it, it's a lesson. And I just, where there's opportunity, go where the opportunity is. So now I can say ESPN without, oh, the, the stab, the, oh, they showed me the door. They hated me. Oh, they killed my job. No, you know? And, and it's sadly, a lot of people are going through that because they just laid off another 300 people yeah, last year. Absolutely. Well, Dennis, we, we, are, we are not good at any of these podcasts. Uh, we're good at starting them, but Jake, you're, are you, you're good on your side? Yep. All awesome. set. So, so we, ended, we end, usually end it with a lightning round. So uh, just a bunch of quick questions and uh, I'll, I'll kick us off. Uh, person you'd most want to sit down to dinner with? I think right now, probably Barack Obama. Favorite city in the world? Melbourne, Australia. Did a dozen Australian Opens. And I gotta tell you, one of the most livable cities there is on the planet. And in January, it's summer. I gotta check it out. Is it okay to sleep with socks on? You know, I prefer that. And it's it's not a good thing. It's not it's not a good not not good for uh, aromas in the morning, shall we say? No. Favorite romantic comedy. Favorite romantic comedy, mm-hmm. like a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have a favorite. You know what? I, my, when everybody anybody asks me about my favorite movie, I either tell them. Um, Lawrence of Arabia or the bridge over the river Kwai, you know, what I'm saying? like, I like these big splashy sagas and epics. So I was never, you know, I, I'll tell you what, um, sleepless in Seattle was pretty good. That's a great um, and a kid I grew up with Bill Pullman was the guy who got jilted in sleeping in, in uh, sleepless in Seattle. So I like that one. Uh, best spot to eat in Syracuse. Best spot to eat in Syracuse. Um, you know what? Um, I I really like going to to Coleman's. Um, I think the food is better. I got. I'll tell you, Kitty Hoynes is is as good as you can. That, that's a great place to go. Kitty Hoynes. Well, Coleman's is good. I've been there before. That's in Tempo, yep. right? Yep. Nice. Great tradition. Nice. Greatest Syracuse Orange athlete ever. Uh, it's, it's without a doubt Jim Brown uh, and Jim Brown not only was the best football player didn't win the Heisman Trophy but he was the best lacrosse player in the world at the time and he's in the lacrosse hall of fame he's in the pro football hall of fame and he came in fourth in qualifying for the decathlon that year the 1956 that they would have gone to the Olympics in Melbourne um yeah he was i mean he was that good at everything he was the the i think the best athlete ever in 40 years what will people be nostalgic for uh you know (laughs) uh hey granddad show me the picture of you wearing a mask one thing people don't understand about being a professor is blank the communications skills that it takes to connect with people um you can present all you want but connecting and communicating and engaging are something completely different. So I, I think that that's because I don't know what I'm talking about. So I, at least I got to be able to engage people. 
what's the worst advice you've ever been given? Don't do that. That's bad advice. It, you, whatever you, you don't take a shot. You don't ever want to hear somebody say, don't do that. Don't try that. Don't go there. In one sentence, how do you sum up the internet? The internet is the future of communication and the most powerful uh, connections tool that we've ever had. Bob Costas, his one flaw is? You know, I don't really think he has flaws. If you asked him <laughs> a flaws, he'd say, well, I'm only 5'6", you know? And I, I'll tell you what, I saw Bob Costas in the WAER versus Daily Orange game, and he's got a hell of a set shot. He scored 10 points in about five minutes with this crazy little set shot. So you know what, maybe his, his, his one fault is he, he could not get a rebound. <laughs> That's a great one. Uh, similar question. David Jaffin's one flaw as a student was blank. Having me as his advisor is <laughs> serious detriment. And I'm, I, was, I held the kid back. <laughs> I don't think so. Go to quarantine snack. Oh, go to quarantine snack. You know what I love? I love slicing up apples and spreading as much peanut butter on every slice of apple that I absolutely can put on there. It is fabulous. And, awesome you know, it's, it's, it's good for you. It's, it's an apple. Yeah. That, that one's come up a couple times. Um, yeah. Who's someone you think should be on this podcast? Oh, I'll bet there are a lot of people who should be on this podcast. Um, you know what? I would, I would look for um, like a, a Val Ackerman, a, a woman who's the commissioner of, of sports. I would look for... Re really interesting people who've had a variety of jobs who, who do a lot of things well just because they they gave it a try um there there are really a lot of interesting people I, i've got a good friend tom O'Jackson, who's the deputy commissioner of the uh american the aac um conference and he's he was the guy in charge of every college basketball game that espn aired 30 years ago and he's been the TV liaison. He's done so many interesting and different things in his career. That that's I think that makes for a good, interesting background. And you know, if you haven't talked to Rick Burton, Rick Burton, who I teach yeah. with, was the commissioner of the National Basketball League in Australia. He was the chief marketing officer of the US Olympic Committee. And he started out writing news releases for Miller Brewing and right out of college, uh, you know, and he he wound up as a brand manager, for goodness sake, at, at Miller. So, he, and he's a really interesting guy, a, yeah. a lot smarter than I am. No, no, I, I should reach out to Professor Burton for sure. Last one we got in 2030, you can catch Dennis Denninger, like. You know what? I'm working. I'm working on another book. Um, I'm doing a, a second edition of the book that I have out, which is called Sports on Television: The How and Why Behind What You See. Doing a second edition of that. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a book that's all about this, the impact that the Super Bowl has had on America. So maybe it'll be, you know, at a, of course, the bookstores, there may not even be bookstores in 2030. So it'll be on an, on an internet social media book signing. You know, I'll be, I'll be virtually signing a book for you in 2030. <laughs> awesome. I love that. Love that. Well, Dennis, we can't thank you enough. Where uh, where should people follow along if they want to learn more about your story? 
I think you get you get you already gave a great one there, but uh, you know what? I am at uh, Denninger D. Um, it's Twitter at at D D Denninger D D E N I N G E R um, on Twitter, and I only tweet about sports television. I'm on LinkedIn, and if you you Google my name, you might find my book, uh, which would be a good thing. Uh, I want to leave you with one thought is no matter what somebody tells you to do in your profession, whatever job you have, doing 100% of what is asked is not enough. What you need to do is 101%. Always give somebody a little bit more value than what they asked for. And that is how you will stand out. You will distinguish yourself just that, oh, I didn't even think of that. This kid is, I gotta have this kid on my team. When I, when I go pioneering something else, I want someone who thinks outside of what this assignment was. If, you're, if somebody asks you to do five things, do five and a quarter, do five and a half or six, and that will make the difference and it'll expose you to a whole new world of opportunities. If you're willing to do the status quo and just sit back and do whatever anybody tells you and, and check your watch, I, you know, I gotta get out of here, you know? Well, this, the cards are stacked against you because there are a lot of people who will put in that little extra effort and they're the ones who will excel. They'll get the promotions, they'll get the bigger jobs, they'll get the raises, and that's what you want. Perfect uh, note to end on. Yeah. Needed that. Uh...